kommer då den 11 april den debuterande författaren Kristen Ropenjen från USA. På scenen mötte hon Madeleine Levy från Svenska Dagbladet. Och här har ni samtalet som följde. Ingemar Fast heter jag för övrigt, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på just det, Kulturhuset Stadsteater. Hello. Hello. Hi. Well, we're going to talk about short stories that to me are a lot about mixed emotions, mm-hmm. conflicting definitely emotions. And here I am a bit ambivalent actually about my first question. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a bit banal. I hope. <laughs> Good, <laughs> we can ease in. Somebody told me to always ask first what you're the most curious about. So, how on earth does it feel being <laughs> an more well unknown person from mm-hmm. well living in Ann Arbor and suddenly having one of your short stories read 4.5 million times is it more yeah, now even something like that yeah um a huge advance for two books um on tour with your debut um yeah how does it feel it's something you could ask athletes usually yeah. but I'm actually curious yeah um I mean it, it it's Almost, I feel like one of the way that this year has gone is that I have so many big things have happened that um, sort of bring up so many big feelings that I can rarely feel any of them at all or like at fu- like in full. I kind of move so quickly from one point to the other that it's like months later I'll have a feeling and I'll be like, oh, that's the feeling from you know three months ago when the story sold to the New Yorker. Um, because really, yeah, the the big change, the first big change was living in Ann Arbor, not like sending stories out, but really only having had a handful appear anywhere. And then having that story be accepted to the New Yorker, truly at that moment, I thought this is the happiest I will ever be. (laughs) And I might've been right. Like there was something so pure about that. Um, And everything that came later, um, certainly, you know, selling the book was a great joy. It's been wonderful meeting people, but there's so much else with the virality and the reactions that that was almost too big to process that when I try and like get back to what felt the best, I think about just sort of sitting on the lawn and calling my mom and being like, my story was accepted to the New Yorker. That's the feeling that is the realist and, and feels the best. Yeah. Um, should we recap very briefly? Have you read it? Yeah. <laughs> Did you read it online? Yeah. <laughs> um, so most of you know that it's about, well, Margot and Robert, they go on one terrible date um, and their story is short but obviously had an amazing impact on the people yeah. who read it. Um, what do you think, what, what hit a note, what is it about Cat Person? I mean, that too, I feel like the honest answer is I don't know and that I'm still thinking about it. What other people have told me and what sort of seems like the core of everything, um, and certainly other things went on, but um, I feel like the people who found the story initially and loved it were mostly young women. Um, the story, as I guess you mostly know, is is told from the perspective of, of Margot, who is going on this date and working really hard to sort of figure out who the person on the other side of the date is, right? She's, she's trying to get to know him. She's, she's thinking really hard about him. She's kind of 
really making an effort to make the date go well, even though she herself is kind of ambivalent and not really sure like who this guy is and whether it's a date she, she should be on. And it gets to a point where, as again, I guess you know, like she, she's been working really hard, kind of changing her mind really rapidly about how she feels. And then um, she gets to the point where, where they're about to have sex and she has a feeling that's sort of the first really strong and unconflicted feeling she's had through the whole night, which is, I don't want to do this. But um, for a variety of reasons, she kind of ma she makes the decision that she's going to go through with it anyway because it would be easier to say yes than to say no. And I think um, what I heard from from people was that like one of the things that people were kind of surprised by was like if you had asked them if you had asked someone, you know, would you have ever have sex with someone just to be polite? They would say, no, that's absurd. And yet the story breaks it down so that you can see, or someone could read it and see, yeah, not only would I, but maybe I have. And I think that was a really, that's actually a really uncomfortable feeling. It's not, you know, a, it's not, it, yeah, it's a difficult place to be in, but what seemed like it happened was that women read the story, saw themselves in it, were honest about it, and sort of used it as a way to talk about a whole much wider set of experiences um, and had some really complicated conversations. And then obviously there were sort of second waves of, of, of backlash and people not getting it and then like people fighting. And that I think virality always has like some of that element in it. But that to me seems like the core uh, of what happened and what people responded to. Yeah, Margot thinks about it almost like sending a dish back at a yeah. restaurant if you don't fancy it. Right. But actually, I mean, even that, why, especially for women yeah. in a society which is quite polarized and actually quite impolite online, mm. is it so difficult to say no? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that is the, the million dollar question and I don't know that there's one answer. But I do think that with Margot, one of the things that happens is that she understands kind of her power in the dynamic to come from anticipating what Robert wants and what he expects and and sort of smoothing things along like sort of that she feels like she's in control because she can make him happy she can sort of when he gets upset she can calm him down when he gets annoyed she can cheer him up and that that feels to her like control and I think in some ways that is and it's a kind of control that I think young women in particular can get really adept at really quickly, like pleasing other people as a way of like moving through the world, like, and feeling like you, you have some agency. And I think the problem is that then it can start to feel sometimes like you can't necessarily that, that, you're so out of practice, you haven't really been thinking about the things that you want or what you want beyond the social interaction to go well, and that suddenly you can like kind of bump up against this other thing you haven't been anticipating, that maybe that's a piece of it. Yeah. With gender equality going forward, do you think that we will see less of this? I mean, I think that, certainly I hope so. And I think one thing that is so amazing, about the, like the story itself just sort of ends somewhat abruptly and like negatively it doesn't it doesn't say and this is what she should have done or you know here's another way to behave but I think it's for me at least like that kind of dynamic the the dangerousness of it or the difficulty of it is that it's so subtle that you almost might not know and that you could feel as though and I, and I think she, 
she was, but I was like, well, I'm choosing this. This is what I'm doing because I want to. It's easier to be in this, you know, I'm making this decision. And the problem is that the other decisions that led up to it sort of sped by so quickly that she didn't have a chance to pull it back. And I think talking about it, right, and saying like, oh, I've noticed that I act in this way sometimes does offer a little bit of, of space to act differently. Um, but I do think it's a lot of that other stuff is deeply rooted in other ways, so it won't change overnight. Do you think there's a risk of men starting to behave the same way? I mean, I wonder. I certainly think, you know, it it seemed like the the polarization around the story did seem very gendered, like that men who read the story tended to just identify with Robert or judge him, but rarely identified with Margot. And I always did think that was kind of unnecessary, that like certainly that feeling that you have paid so much attention to someone else's needs that you lost track of your own doesn't seem like anything that only women can have. I certainly think women tend to be more socialized to do it and that there are aspects of, of Margot's situation that are really gendered. Like the idea that he could be physically a danger to her is something that like surfaces in her mind and then gets pushed down. So it's not exactly the same, but yeah, I mean, it seems possible. So going back to that week, it's early December. Yeah. Um, you're in Ann Arbor. How how was it? For how did it all play out that with the story going viral and going viral so quickly? Yeah. So um, basically, I was the story came out and it appeared on a Monday, um, and it was amazing. You know, it, it went up online and sort of was on newsstands at the same time and. Like, I shared it. I put it on Facebook. You know, everyone I'd ever met said congratulations. It was really wonderful. I had to drink with my friends. And then and then it was kind of over. Um, there was there was some quiet after. And I sort of have this like, funny memory now of being like, well, that's it. It's how it feels when all your dreams come true. Like, the next day, <laughs> you just keep going. Um, and then I think it was a Friday. I was with my girlfriend at a coffee shop. Um, and we were, we were both writers and so we were working and, um, she ended up on Twitter and, and she was scrolling through and she's like, Oh, something's going on with your story. And I didn't understand it at the time. I was like, what? She's like, Oh, people are talking about on Twitter. I sort of like, so, you know, I was like a little snarky about it. Um, and I, I didn't know. And then I went home. And I got on Twitter trying to figure it out. And um, I could see, like, there were, I could see I was getting notifications and things. But um, I couldn't quite get it. And, my, and then my mom called. And she was, she said, you know, I, so I told her, something's going on with my story. And she got on Twitter. And then we're both sort of searching and trying to figure out what's going on. And then the moment that I realized something really big was happening was she, she was scrolling. And she goes, Kristen oh my God, someone Barack Obama follows on Twitter, just stared your story. Do you think Barack Obama read your story? And then she started crying. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, <laughs> something is up. <laughs> um, and so then after that, it was a real, so it was a real whirlwind because then we also um, like took my book out and pretty quickly actually I shut my computer and turned my phone off and tried to back away from really? it a little bit. Yeah. Because yeah. it just was too much. I mean, it was, it was, a lot of it was good, but not all of it was. And even just the scale, I think, of, of reading that many reactions to your work all at once, it felt overwhelming. And, and so I think I made the right decision to sort of pause. Yeah. And with, well, in retrospect, what, what were the reactions that really meant something to you that really yeah. made a difference? Um, I, I guess sort of touching back on what um, I'd said before, I, I think 
it was really stunning the way that I felt like the women who were reading the story, because it was mostly women at the beginning, were just ready to be made uncomfortable by a story. Like, to me, the story is very uncomfortable, um, and it and it's dark. And I think somehow, in maybe in the like, later stages, like it, it, some of that darkness was lost. But for me, like reading... There was a moment, I mean, I've said before, and it's true, the story's not autobiographical, but a lot of the emotions are really personal. And I had this moment where I remember I was writing and I was like, I wonder if I'm the only person who's ever felt this way. And then to have the world kind of scream back, like, no, was amazing. Although also kind of heartbreaking. And I think that was hard, you know, that suddenly there were all these stories coming at me that were so personal and so detailed and so dark. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about darkness, um, you know you want this, it's out now, yes, so Cat Person has got, well, it's surrounded by a few friends yeah, or yeah. enemies, enemies. <laughs> um, and I'd actually like to um, talk about Sigmund Freud. Sure, yeah, happy to. And about the unheimlich, yeah, the, the uncanny, yep. that which is familiar yeah. and yet unfamiliar. Right and therefore scares you. Does yeah. this um, tell you anything? Does this ring a bell at all of in your writing? Of course, yeah. No, I, I, I know that idea, and I think I am always in some ways trying to capture some aspect of that feeling, and it's maybe the feeling that that discomfort or that uncertainty where you're looking at something and in one light it's completely mundane and then maybe the light shifts a little and it's completely strange and also frightening. Um, I think all the stories in one way or another ha like have that, that motion, that kind of slipperiness, right? Um, and yeah, Cat Person, as I was saying, yeah, is a dark and uncomfortable story. It, it takes place like sort of fully in the real world, although there are little bits like I always imagined the story in the collection, which goes, in, for those who haven't read it, it goes in much weirder and sort of many different directions. So there are some stories that are almost horror stories. There are others about crime. There's a fairy tale in there. And I think one of the things that I think, or that feeling that is maybe that unheimly feeling is the... Um, the idea that you suddenly don't know what kind of story you're in, you know, like you're, you're reading, a, you're living your life and you're like, suddenly it's like, is this date going well and it's a romantic comedy or is it not? And it's a horror movie, right? Like you just don't quite know. And I think the story is try and capture that, try and capture that slipping feeling of just, I don't know where I am. Yeah. yeah. For a European reader, there are quite a few Play, well, they're familiar mostly from Hollywood movies because mm -hmm. there are these steps in an American upbringing yeah. um, that for us, I mean, for example, the dating being very formulaic, right. very much according to right. protocol, or the typical American Hindu, uh -huh. college dorm life, uh -huh. those things we know mostly, yeah. well, indirectly. Yeah. Um, and I find it quite interesting how you work with them and then you kind of skew them and you make them, well, you find the horror in them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really curious, actually, and have been about the way that the stories would travel. I wondered that about Cat Person, actually, you know, whether it was so rude. I was surprised because it did seem in some ways so rooted in the sort of familiar rhythms of what a date at home looks like, right? The movie and then the drink and then the, you know. Um, but, but I think... I don't know. I, I, I do feel like there is a kind of um, 
culture. I don't know. <laughs> the thought that came to mind when you just said that was how I have, I had friend, a, a roommate from Germany who really wanted, to, who to, talked about how they would throw American parties. Do you know what I mean? And there would be like red solo cups and like a, a pong, beer pong table. And it was like familiar, but unfamiliar. It was this odd, totally foreign concept that that would be the theme of a, of a party. And I feel like the, the stories do, they have a kind of almost a 90s pop vibe sometimes, I think, in terms of like the culture that people are consuming. There's one story in particular that's sort of deeply rooted in one year, 1994. Um, but all of them, I think, I try to like keep connected to that. The culture that mattered the most to me um, was when I was growing up that doesn't quite exist anymore. Do you know what I mean? And so then lives again in some of the stories. Which parts don't exist anymore? Is it, well... The candy and the, well, the visuals, or do you mean the lifestyle? Yeah, I would say the one I was thinking of is um, the, there's a story called The Boy in the Pool in the, in, where the girls are together in a basement watching essentially softcore porn on the, on, the, um, on the television. And that to me is a memory that's so, like, it's such a, a sense memory, right? The smell of, of basements when you're a teenager and that feeling of sort of scandal as you, like, cycle through the remote control. And it does seem like that is kind of, it's not, it does seem like it doesn't quite exist. And the girls in the story, they grow up. So we follow the stories or the characters um, as they move through time. And there's actually a really fast jump. And I feel like part of what that story is about is like almost angry nostalgia. Like they don't, the feeling that something has been lost, the friendship, the closeness, the intimacy of being 13 is lost along with kind of all the culture of your youth that kind of exists, but not really. And they really they want to capture it. And one of the characters in particular essentially like makes this huge effort to bring back that thing they had in the past that, you know, was of its time. Yes. It doesn't quite. Doesn't go as plans. No, because you can't, right? I mean, that, that impulse to like, it's a, it's a control feeling. It's like, I, I, I want to grip onto it too tightly. You never can. Yeah. Um, in these stories, the lovers, or the people who date each other, yeah. at least, I should say. <laughs> yeah, that seems... I mean, they despise each other. Often. They humiliate each other. Yeah. Um, they secretly... Well, they talk behind each other's backs. Yeah. They throw, well, a whole glass of ice water, and that's the actual glass yeah. as well, yeah. at each other. They even end up killing each other. Occasionally, yeah. <laughs> is it this bad? I, I do. <laughs> yes, I do think this is bad. Or certainly it's no, Is life this bad? Oh, is no. dating this yeah. bad? love this bad it's funny that question or like some form of it always I always feel like I should smile less when I promote this book sometimes <laughs> like people expect me to be very dark and dressed all in black and just making an argument for the ugliness of, of the human condition and and I don't I think the book is dark the book is essentially a collection of of like riffs on the horror story riffs on stories where things get as dark as they can um and one of the ideas I had for the book was thinking about all the stories and maybe the, all the horror stories that, that women in particular kind of carry around in their heads as they're growing up and how different those stories are. So like the scary story about a bad date that your friend went on next to a scary story about um, the crime that happened in your town that you always kind of, that formed your idea of what the worst thing that could happen might be, but also fairy tales. And I feel like these stories 
it's very, they, they seem to me, they work because they are stories, because they're about that sort of fear that you have where you want to know what's the worst thing that can possibly happen. And then the sort of odd satisfaction that can come from when you actually play that scenario out in your head. And I think, like, hopefully they're also funny. Some of them don't actually end as badly as they possibly could. And in some ways that feels like a huge relief when things are only kind of mundanely awful as opposed to <laughs> murderous. <laughs> as um, but yeah, no, it, it's an angle on life. It's a, it's, a, it's a take on what it can sometimes feel like, which I think is overwhelmingly bad. Yeah, and also, I mean, one of the strongest, or well, the many of the strongest moments, are especially when I guess, yeah, emotions conflict, when repulsion and attraction yeah. uh, go together. Yeah, um, I think you dedicated your book, the book to your mother, who yes. I think it says who taught me to love what I was scared of. I yeah. don't know, I'm not quite sure what it yeah, would be exactly. in English. To, lo to love what scares me. Yeah, um, and I do, and I, and I do think that's another place that the book just comes from as opposed to like I'm always drawn in stories to to the most to a kind of intensity that you can struggle to find in life and I think even scary stories have a kind of clarity right at some point where you're just like the feelings are so raw and so kind of compressed and condensed and my mom I mean the book my my mom was a horror fan I think there's a very literal me there is a very literal meaning to that dedication like she was reading Stephen King all the time and I would steal the books off her shelf and I would have nightmares and then she'd get mad and be like why are you doing that you hate these books but I did but I also loved them and I think um I think I can be in some ways a like not exactly a cowardly, but a, like a shy person in real life. Like the kind of interpersonal social anxiety is the thing that terrifies me the most. And yet I think books have been a place where I can be braver and be drawn to the things that are overwhelming in life because it, it gives you a chance to kind of look at them really closely. But this is also about sex. Sex is very much in your stories. It's yeah. mixed. I mean, arousal is mixed with yeah. repulsion right. and even with hatred, I would say, sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a man who can't really have sex without fantasizing about, well, basically stabbing the yeah. or the women wanting to be stabbed yeah. by his yeah. dick that's turned into a knife. Yeah, uh-huh. quite... That is a strange book to dedicate to your mom when you put it that way. But <laughs> <laughs> um, she's cool. <laughs> um, but do you think that's a condition of sex? It's always mixed with some kind of repulsion, or is it... I don't think it always is, but I do think it can be. And I think what is maybe more true or what of more like definitely true is that the line is, 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 is blurry and that the things that draw us to someone really powerfully can be, I mean, that's a, almost like a cliche that, that love and hate are the same, you know, flip sides. And I think so are de desire and repulsion that, that, that feeling of, of like getting close to someone like, you're d it's wonderful to get almost to get closer and closer and closer but like when boundaries dissolve and someone's too close that feeling is repulsion right it is like ugh i need this gone and i think a lot of the stories are tracking people who are jumping back and forth um like over that line and aren't able quite to like steadily remain on one side or the other one of the stories that really for me but grabbed my heart is about uh -huh. Well, a man who meets a woman who basically wants to be hit. Mm -hmm. She wants to be hit very, very hard right. for sex. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those, it's so suggestive. It, you can't 
stop thinking, what might she have been through? Right. What might have brought her to a place right. where this... I mean, it's a death wish, almost, yeah. isn't it? It's Because it's not just, oh, I want to be slapped a little bit. Right. It's about actually being hit with risk of her right. life. Right. Um, can you remember, I mean, how did you come to that? And how? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that story in particular is both about, yeah, about having a desire for something that could hurt us or something that scares us. Um, and I think it's an extreme version of, of something that I think I see a lot in myself and in other people of just sort of knowing, of just feeling pulled to this thing that can hurt you. And also I think one thing that's really characteristic or like notable about her is that she's built this sort of elaborate system of rules to try and contain this kind of impossible to contain impulse, this very dangerous desire. Like the setup is she sort of like meets the guy and she's like, this is what I want and you're going to do this and then 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 I'm going to leave. And it's that feeling of like maybe, I think all the characters in the story have like raw desires. They know that they have feel real ambivalence about and rightly so, right? But her way of dealing with it is to try is both to go for it completely. A lot of the other characters lie to themselves about it or try and deny that they have those kind of feelings. And she says, okay, no, I'm going to be really honest about it and I'm going to make all these rules and then maybe it'll be somehow containable. And I think what, to me, the core of that story, though, actually is, is the effect on the man. Because I think in, in a way, it's, it's the most consensual relationship in the book in that she's so clear about what she wants and asks for it so specifically. And yet being drawn into that scenario is, I think, traumatic for him. Like, it, like he, he gives her what he wants, she wants, and cannot bear, like, what it takes from him. And that, I think, I don't know, I, I just, that scenario and the, that question of, like, how the things that we want hurt other people even when we don't want them to is one that I think all the stories in the in the book are really concerned about yes um why is that so yeah I mean I don't know like I guess there's like probably a therapist somewhere in the world who might be able to answer that question on like a deeper level but I think for me just as a writer when I'm thinking about what I'm interested in I'm interested in power always, but I'm specifically interested, I think, in the lies we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves about power. I think to try and, like, I think I am a person who for a really long time was just sort of like, well, you know, everyone should be equal and I want, you know, I'm a good person and I want to, like, have relationships that are, that are clear. And I didn't, I wasn't always so attuned to the way that power works in relationships. And I think people lie to themselves when they feel powerless. They tell themselves stories that put them farther, sort of, that put them in control when maybe they're not. And I think people also lie to themselves when they feel like they have too much power, that that's a really uncomfortable position to be in. And you try and sort of disavow it and push it away and say, oh, like, it seemed like I was in control but actually, like that, this was what they wanted. You know that you know, you know you want this, and I think that that is a, a something I'm always trying to peel back or like see clearly. I think it's so hard to actually see with clarity the way that power is acting in the world. Do you think that we have the actual power to affect other people, to change them, to m- mold them? 
You know, I think, I think, I think we do less than I used to. I think so much of it is story, like sort of simultaneously told stories that like you tell yourself that this person has power over you and they do because you believe that story or maybe they do more because you believe that story or you tell someone else like I'm in control in this situation and they believe you. And if you say it persuasively enough, it can be really hard for, to, for the other person to like look up and be like, wait. I can leave, you know, like that's not what actually is going on. And so certainly in some really clear scenarios, people do have power over each other. That's absolutely the case, you know, physically or like, you know, in kind of larger structural ways. But I think the story is much, or the book is much more about kind of constructed power, ideas of power, um, the way that we kind of tell each other we have power or don't. Yeah. And do you think that relationships can be equal? I think they can be more equal than they are here. Um, I think that, but I do think that like, no, that power is always at play, you know, like, and, and sometimes it's just a little bit and sometimes it shifts. And I think, you know, at best, it's not that no one has any power over anyone, but like the kind of power you have over me seems equally sort of balanced by the kinds of power I have over you and that, that we're holding the reins a little loosely and also we're seeing things clearly. Do you know what I mean? That seems to me more of an ideal than a purely egalitarian relationship in which power never comes into play. That I think is the setup for kind of self-delusion for the, these kinds of, of stories. Cat Person came out kind of in the wake of Me Too, in yeah. the context of yeah. Me Too. Um, how did you relate to the Me Too movement when, well, when it first yeah. happened? When Yeah, I mean, I, as a person, I related to it a lot and I felt deeply invested in it. And I felt like it was part of this larger thing that was happening back home that I was cared passionately about and was really overwhelmed by. I felt like, and, and sort of in the midst of, um, it did not occur to me as I was writing the story. I mean, it couldn't have because I wrote the story in April. The Me Too movement hadn't really come into full into full swing then. But um, the, to to have the story have this life that it did in relationship to the Me Too movement took me by surprise, and it felt it was part of what was so overwhelming about um, that moment was that like it was a movement that really mattered to me, but I didn't ever anticipate being any kind of like a spokesperson, I guess, or like knowing that my story would be read in this way. And so that felt like a kind of responsibility that I was really hesitant to, uh, to take on. And it's part of the reason I didn't talk about the story. Well, like the story came out and I sort of was like, I'm not going to say anything. And I actually, in retrospect, feel like that was the best possible choice I could have made because it meant that other people sort of made the arguments and made the cases. And even when, you know, there was stuff that was that I really strongly disagreed with and the way that people were reading or using the story, it felt like sort of wiser voices eventually like answered and had that the, the conversations ended up in a really sophisticated place in part because I wasn't there to try and like direct traffic in the middle of it all. So, so yeah, I feel like the, the story's life in relation to me too, is just, it's just this strange thing that, that kind of, I feel like happened, you know, I don't feel like I, I did it. I feel like I wrote a story and then something came along and, and swept it up and used it in a way that, that I feel proud of, even though I don't, I try not to take more ownership of it than I feel like I just. But I guess 
um, the Me Too movement opened quite a few different doors yeah. and windows in different directions. Right. And this was one of them. Right. That it's not always so clear yeah. what is abuse of power and what is not. Yeah. Um, when it, there's, it's not so... I yeah. mean, fiction can do that for us, right. I guess. It can show us yeah. the grey zones. It can gr- show us these areas where things aren't... Well, they're perfectly legal mm-hmm. and yet not quite right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it is really important. I feel like my understanding of the way the story relates to Me Too is literally in the title, like, of Me Too. Like, of people, women, all of a sudden saying, this experience that I had, that I thought was just mine, is in fact shared widely and is bad and and is difficult and needs to be talked about. It does sometimes worry me a little to have the story, like, used as an example of Me Too because there isn't actually an issue of consent at play in the way that Margot says yes. And I don't like the idea that, like, we could redu- that's not what a lot a lot of what the me too movement was about was about real and explicit abuses of power and that seems important to like be distinct you know be clear about when you're talking about what the story is about and what it does um what about the other stories were they written kind of later on throughout were they all written like before most of them most of them were written before i had been working on the stories in the collection for five or six years probably um and but cat person came out and when when it was accepted to the new yorker that was the time i was like okay i might be able to have a chance to publish a collection um i just didn't think there would be much of a chance before that and so i'd put together a manuscript and the title was the same the first story was the first one the last one was the last one um and then, and that's sort of what sold. And then after that, I added, there's a large story, the good guy in the middle. I was working on that actually when Cat Person was published. So I finished that and added Death Wish, the other story that, that you brought up. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly, I wrote the collection in a much different world than it eventually kind of emerged into. Yeah, do you think it is a different world? Has Me Too changed things profoundly? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, th- I think... It feels to me, there was a time, certainly, like, kind of after the 2016 election, when everything felt utterly different, and compl- the world felt totally upside down, and, and I think, I actually think that, I, I wrote Cat Person at that moment, and in a way, I do think it sort of crystallizes something about what it felt to be alive then, of just, like, this frustration and disgust and feeling just, like, like just ugh, <laughs> you know. I feel like that is in in that story and in a few of the others, but I don't know. I, I don't think we'll know for a while how different the sort of fundamental um, the fundamental questions are. You know how much has actually changed. I think I actually meant it in a much more selfish way, and that I meant sort of my world was very different when I read the story <laughs> or when I wrote the collection than when it eventually came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think. Well, I know that you have a piece that you read sometimes. sometimes. Could we perhaps hear a little bit about that? Because it's, well, in some ways connected to what, well, how we can react to... Absolutely. I think it's connected to all the things we've just been talking about. So, yeah, um, I will read, if y'all don't mind, I will read um, just a little bit, maybe about 10 minutes or so, um, from the last story in the collection. It's a story called Biter. Um, um, Do notice this amazing first sentence to a short story. (laughs) I mean, no, yeah. Um, All right, well, here we go. Biter. Ellie was a biter. She bit other kids in preschool, bit her cousins, bit her mom. 
By the time she was four years old, she was going to a special doctor twice a week to work on biting. At the doctor's, Ellie made two dolls bite each other, and then the dolls talked about how biting and being bitten made them feel. Ouch, one said. Sorry, said the other. I feel sad about that, said the one. I feel happy, said the other. But sorry again. She brainstormed lists of things she could do instead of biting, like raise her hand and ask for help, or take a deep breath and count to ten. At the doctor's suggestion, Ellie's parents put a chart on Ellie's bedroom door, and Ellie's mom put a gold star on it for every day Ellie didn't bite. But Ellie loved biting, even more than she loved gold stars, and she kept on biting, joyfully and fiercely, until one day after preschool, pretty Katie Davis pointed at Ellie and whispered loudly to her dad, that one's Ellie, no one likes her, she bites people. And Ellie felt so sick with shame, she didn't bite anyone again for more than 20 years. As an adult, though her active biting days were long behind her, Ellie still indulged in daydreams in which she stalked her coworkers around the office, biting them. For example, she imagined sneaking into the copy room where Thomas Whittacombe was collating reports, so engrossed in his task that he didn't notice Ellie creeping up behind him on all fours. Ellie, what on earth? Thomas Whittacombe would cry in the final seconds before Ellie sunk her teeth into his plump and hairy calf. For while the world had succeeded in shaming Ellie out of biting, it couldn't make her forget the joy of tiptoeing behind Robbie Ketrick while he was standing at the craft table, smugly stacking blocks. Everything is normal, quiet, boring, and then here comes Ellie, chomp. Now Robbie Ketrick is screaming like a baby, and everybody is scrambling and yelling, and Ellie is no longer just a little girl, but a wild creature, pacing the halls of the preschool, sowing chaos and destruction in her wake. The difference between children and adults is that adults understand the consequences of their actions. And Ellie, as an adult, understood that if she wanted to pay her rent and keep her health insurance, she could not run around biting people at work. Therefore, for a long time, Ellie did not seriously consider biting her coworkers. Not until the office manager died of a heart attack at lunch in front of everyone and the temp agency sent Corey Allen to replace him. Corey Allen. Later, Ellie's coworkers would ask each other, what on earth had the people at the temp agency been thinking sending him? Green-eyed, blonde-haired, pink-cheeked Corey Allen did not belong in an office environment. Corey Allen, like a fawn or a satyr, belonged in a sunlit field surrounded by happy, naked nymphs making love and drinking wine. As Michelle in accounting put it, Corey Allen gave off the distinct impression he might, at any second, decide to quit being an office manager and run off to live in a tree. Ellie, who is something of an outcast at work, often walked in on hushed conversations about Corey Allen that presumably centered around how much the other women in the office wanted to sleep with him. Corey Allen was beautiful and fey. Ellie didn't want to have sex with Corey Allen. Ellie wanted to bite him. Hard. She discovered this while watching Corey Allen place glazed donuts on a platter before Monday morning meeting. When he'd finished arranging the donuts, he turned around and, noticing her staring at him, winked. 
Why, Ellie, you look hungry, he said with a leer. Ellie had not been checking out Corey Allen the way he seemed to be implying. She hadn't even been thinking about the donuts. But suddenly, she found herself imagining what it would be like to lock her jaws onto the soft part of Corey Allen's neck. Corey Allen would yelp and sink to his knees, that entitled look wiped right off his face. He'd slap weakly at her and cry, Oh no, Ellie, stop, please, what is going on? But Ellie wouldn't answer, because her mouth would be too full of Corey Allen's sweet and gamey flesh. Not that it had to be his neck. She wasn't picky about location. She could bite Corey Allen on his hand, or his face, or his elbow, or his ass. Each would have a different taste, a different mouthfeel, a different proportion of bone to fat to skin. Each would be, in its own way, delectable. Maybe I will bite Corey Allen, Ellie thought after the meeting. Ellie worked in communications, which meant that she spent 90% of her time crafting emails that no one ever read. She had a savings account and life insurance, but no lover, no ambition, no close friends. Her entire existence, she sometimes felt, was premised on the idea that pursuing pleasure was less important than avoiding pain. Perhaps the problem with adulthood was that you weighed the consequences of your actions too carefully in a way that left you with a life you despised. What if Ellie did bite Corey Allen? What if she did? What then? That night, Ellie changed into her nicest pajamas, lit a candle, and poured herself a glass of Cabernet. Then she uncapped a pen, opened her favorite notebook, and turned to a fresh page. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. One, it is wrong. Two, I could get in trouble. She nibbled on the tip of her pen, then added two subsidiary points. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. One, it is wrong. Two, I could get in trouble. A, I could get fired. B, I could get arrested or fined. Ellie thought, if it meant that I could bite Corey, I would not mind getting fired. For the past year and a half, she'd spent most of her lunch hour, most days, on her phone, swiping through job postings on Monster.com. She was ready for a new position and felt perfectly well qualified for one. However, finding a new job after quitting your old one was not the same as finding a new job after you'd been fired from your old job for biting. Would it be impossible to get a new job in those circumstances or merely very difficult? It was hard to know. Ellie sipped her wine and turned her attention to B, I could get arrested or fined. Well, that was certainly a possibility. But the truth was that if a woman bit a man in an office environment, there would be a strong assumption that the man had done something to deserve it. If, for example, she went up to Corey and bit him in full view of everyone at Monday morning meeting, and then later, when they asked her why she'd done it, she answered, sexual gratification, then yes, she'd probably be arrested. But if, instead, she bit Corey in private, say, in the copy room, and when they asked her why she'd done it, she said, he tried to touch me inappropriately, or even, so as not to mar his reputation, he came up behind me and scared me, I bit him instinctively, I'm so sorry, then people would probably give her the benefit of the doubt. When you got right down to it, as a young white woman without a criminal record, Ellie probably had at least one get-out-of-jail-free card. As long as she spun some semi-reasonable story, she would be believed. 
In fact, Ellie thought, as she stretched out her legs and refilled her glass of wine, there was another possibility for how all this could play out. What if she went up to Corey in private and bit him, and the experience was so bizarre he didn't tell anyone about it because he had trouble believing it himself? Imagine. It's late in the afternoon, past five, dark already. The office is empty. Everyone but Corey and Ellie has gone home. Corey is loading paper into the Xerox machine when Ellie enters the room. She stands behind him, inappropriately close. He thinks he knows what is coming. He stiffens, preparing to politely reject her, not because he has standards for workplace propriety, but because he's already hooking up with Rachel in HR. Ellie, he begins, apologetically, as she grabs his forearm and lifts it to her mouth. Corey's lovely face contorts, first in shock, then pain. Stop it, Ellie, he cries out, but no one hears him. The tendons of his arm roll and snap beneath Ellie's jaws. Finally, Corey gathers his wits enough to shove Ellie away. She stumbles backwards, lands against the stacks of copy paper, and slides to the ground. Corey stares at her in horror, clutching his bleeding arm. He's waiting for her explanation, but she gives him none. Instead, she stands up calmly, straightens her skirt, and wipes the blood from her mouth before she leaves the room. What does Corey do? Of course, he could run straight to HR and say, Ellie bit me, but after all, it was an office, not a preschool. Everything about the conversation would be ridiculous. Ellie, did you bite Corey? They would ask. And Corey would raise her eye or Ellie would raise her eyebrows and say, Uh, no. What a weird question. If the HR people tried to push and said, Ellie, these are serious allegations, all Ellie would have to say was, Yeah, seriously insane. Of course I did not bite the office manager, and I don't know why he's saying that I did. Really, the odds were high Corey wouldn't say anything at all. He would stay in the copy room for a while, contemplating the situation, and then, the next day, he'd decide that the easiest thing to do would be to pretend it hadn't happened. He'd show up to work in a long-sleeved shirt to cover the ugly bruise on his arm, the little half-moon where she'd marked him with her teeth, and then part of Corey Allen's brain would be reserved for keeping track of where, exactly, Ellie was. She'd catch him looking at her in meetings, and when they were at office parties together, He'd continually be moving, trying to keep as far as possible away from her. In a way, it'd be like they were always dancing, even if he never spoke to her again. Months later, when no one else was watching, she'd grin and snap her jaws at him, and he'd turn ghost pale and hurry from the room. He would remember her for the rest of his life. They'd be joined by the glistening strands of his fear. Later that night, the sweat drying on her body her legs tangled in the sheets, Ellie forced herself to go back out to the living room and get her notebook. Fantasies were fantasies, but it was important to keep at least one foot in the realm of the real. She got back in bed and opened the notebook and rewrote her list. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. One, it is wrong. Two, it is wrong. Three, it is wrong. Four, it is wrong. I'll stop there. Thanks. Well, there's quite a bit at work there, on and between the lines. Uh-huh, yeah. 
in some ways, I guess it's a reversal because it's a situation a lot of women have been in, sure. being there next to, well, in the copy room or whatever, and going, should I say something? Should right. I go to HR? It'll be ridiculous. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, that's definitely the parallel, right? And I, and I think the way that it's both unnerving and funny sort of moves, you know, I, I, I think about that every time I read it. I think, I think this is funny, and yet I also know that it, in a way it's not. And that line of the story, the way it can move back and forth, I think is characteristic. I don't know, I think a, a lot of times horror and humor kind of straddle the line, you know, and you're moving from one to the other really quickly. And I think Ellie, I love Ellie in a way. She's so sort of clear about what she wants and also why she can't do it, right? Like she has her list. She's determined to do the right thing. Um, and yet she's terrifying and you don't want to, I don't want to slide in to talk about her as though, as though she's not. There's also, of course, the thing like, what is the appropriate response to, well, sexual harassment, for example? Is it to go to HR? Is it to buy it back? Right. Is it... Right. And that I think the way that the the multiple possibilities can play out in your head so completely sort of before even like instantaneously in one way and yet like she sees really clearly without even have to thinking about it so much it's not just what do I want to do to Corey it's what will Corey do if I do the thing that I want and what will the people who Corey tells his story to think about when he tells you know like that how quickly that can kind of like muffle or shape the response, the understanding of the way that, that the action will be received. And of course, the layers of power. Exactly. I mean, who is in power, as you right. say, as a young white woman right. without a record, she right. could probably get away with, right. um, which I presume nobody else in society would be able to get away with. Who else could bite somebody right. or I, physically yeah. rat somebody and get away with it? Right, and I, I do think that there's a way that um, that kind of, the young white woman is a figure that is both can get away with things that no one else can get away with, but can get away with them because she's so often figured as powerless, like as the, as the victim and that movement, you know, I think in a way like Margot thinks about that. So many of the female characters in the, in the book are like half aware of that. They're like, I think I have this kind of power, but I really don't know where it, where it ends and where it begins. And then, of course, it's funny. Yes. Are you deliberately <laughs> funny when you write? Or I would say that usually when I'm writing, there's a feeling when things are going well where I'm almost cackling. Like, it's like I'm not almost fully laughing. I'm kind of like, I can't, like, like there's just, the, there's like a spot that I can feel that I'm pushing in myself where I'm just like kind of uncomfortable but also like laughing out of discomfort and then also feeling as though, absurdity like I feel like that sense of like coasting right along the edge of the completely absurd is a really satisfying place to be as a writer and I think it it's it can be in that place and come out with a story that's something more like you know cat person I think has moments that are quite funny but the moments actually where the characters see the absurdity where Margot sees the absurdity is really sad like there's that moment that is really important to me in that story where she like imagines laughing at how absurd the scenario she's in with with 
an imaginary boyfriend, but she can't laugh because she doesn't have anyone to laugh with. And I feel like... Yeah, yeah she's looking back exactly. at the situation and she's thinking, one day I will laugh about right, this. Right, right. But then she's like, or will I? Because will there be anyone who gets it? Like, will I be able to tell this story specifically to a guy that who would ever kind of hear the humor in it? And without that sort of listener, the story isn't... It, like, that moment isn't funny at all. There was a bit of a debate following Cat Person about identification, yeah. about identifying with the characters in a story or with the well, the storyline, yeah. and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in relation to fiction. Is yeah. that how we should read? Should we read for aesthetic values or for identification or for other reasons? Yeah. So I'm curious, how do you read? Like, what? How do you choose what to read? What fiction or non-fiction? Yeah. Like, but I mean, this mostly concerns fiction. Is that an important aspect for you when you read fiction? I, it is. And, and it certainly it's not the only way that I can read, but I did feel a little bit like, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to identify with a story and to like see yourself in it. And I think there are sort of levels of complexity and like thought you can bring to a story. But I feel like almost everyone when they read, reads like for that those moments of recognition where like it's not just you're identifying ideally you're not just identifying with the character you're you're seeing yourself in a new way because of something that's happening in the story and i feel like that is one of the richest sources of reading pleasure there is and i i do feel like one thing I felt about some of the conversations around the story was that people are really quick to say that young women in particular are kind of reading wrong, you know, like that, oh, they must have just loved this story because they thought they were in it, as opposed to recognizing that, like, that's the most passionate and kind of in-depth way you can read a story is by sort of connecting it to the broader parts of your life. Was there any particular reading that, I mean, influenced or somehow followed you along while you were writing these short stories? Do you mean the thing that I had read or, like, kind of reading? No, well, particular authors, perhaps? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or... Definitely. Um, I feel like the, the author that I feel closest to my heart and that I was thinking about the most when I was writing these is Shirley Jackson because I think she can combine. She does that, like, I'm laughing, I'm terrified, I'm laughing, I'm terrified, better than anybody. And that's, I think, the dream um, for almost all of these stories. Um, there's also a... Uh, an American writer, she actually just won a Guggenheim, Carmen Maria Machado, who only, she's my age, she only has one collection out, but she does, she did the thing where um, when I read her a story that she wrote, which was a, a horror story called The Husband Stitch, it used all of the kind of cultural scary stories from the 80s and 90s that I had grown up with and like turned them into like kind of terrifying and beautiful art. And when I read that story, I thought I could be doing more, like I want to be kind of aiming in a different direction and I feel like more than any other single story that story gave me the kind of ambition that that fueled you know you, want you mentioned Stephen King as well of course yeah was is that do you come back to reading Stephen King or is it like reading from your youth oh no I love Stephen King I was just trying to think of new authors to name <laughs> <laughs> um no I still I still read him really enthusiastically I think um yeah, I, yeah. and and like those stories, one of the great things about sort of getting older and going back, you just see those books in such a different way. And so, like, I've reread, like, Pet Cemetery. I remember terrified me when I was – I've actually had three moments of being terrified by Pet Cemetery. My mom read it in, like, an old pulp um, format, and just the cover gave me nightmares when I was in preschool. Mm -hmm. And then I read the book when I was 11, and it gave me nightmares again. And my mom was like, what is wrong with you? Stop giving yourself nightmares with Pet Cemetery." And then I read it again and there's that book I don't know how many of you guys have read it but it's just like 
a child dies in that in that book and in a way that is just the most the biggest gut punch and like I don't know. I just, I read that story again. I was like, I don't even know why I was terrified when I was loving because I didn't have any sense of like actually how horrible and how heartbreaking this book is. So yeah, there, some of his books, I think you can continue revisiting. Um, quite a few of the writers, I mean, they've read his book on writing. Yeah. Um, and they've been very influenced mm -hmm. by that. Is that the case with you as well? Definitely. I've read that book. I love it. I also did... Um, when Kat, when the book was coming out, I did this thing with The Atlantic called By Heart, where you had to pick a writer, a single story that had really influenced you or just a passage and talk about it. And I was trying to figure out who to choose. And, and I was thinking, I ended up going with Joyce Carol Oates, who's another writer I really love. But um, I thought about Stephen King and I was like, oh, that would be so edgy if I did that. Like, you know, he's sort of more pop and and whatever but then I mentioned that to the man who runs the series and he said Stephen King is easily the most popular like of all the writers that <laughs> you know name people they name Stephen King and I thought that's like when we're all dead that's what's going to matter right to have been the writer that influenced that many other writers going forward I thought that that was kind of amazing um I forgot to ask you before we entered the stage whether you wanted to take oh, questions yeah, from the mind. audience or not, which I was supposed to ask you. <laughs> no worries. So I'm asking you now. Yeah, if people um, have questions, I'm happy to answer them, although I can barely see anyone because of uh, the there, there might be a yeah. mic yeah, somewhere in the shadows. Let's see. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. So you just give me a sign and and maybe some more light. Yeah, some more light. And there they are. I, I throw the microphone into your hands. Everybody's stunned. Everyone's shy at the beginning. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, great. Keep it close to your mouth. Okay. There we go. Um, hi. hi. First of all, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the passage that you read. And I'm just curious, why do you choose to write short stories as opposed to novels? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I always thought that I would write a novel first. I love short stories. Um, I'm... But I usually write short stories kind of as a way of escaping from a larger project. Um, I feel like the joy of a short story, at least for me, is that often I'll be kind of hammering away at, at something else and then I'll, an idea for a story will come to me and often with like a kind of urgency that it like drags me away from the thing that I'm supposed to be working on and that kind of productive procrastination but also feeling of like 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 kind of illicitness, like, oh, this is the thing I'm doing just because I want to. I think actually that energy, when I can get it into a story, is a really good thing. And so I'm kind of trying to figure out now how to capture that with, with something bigger because I'm working on a novel now. Um, but I imagine that there will be many short stories that come specifically because I don't want to be working on the novel I'm supposed to be working on. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? Don't be shy. I don't have a very definite question, but um, Madeleine asked you about Sigmund Freud. Mm -hmm. 
And I think you skipped off very easily. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's a that, that's direct. Yeah, I don't know. Um, do you want to? Should I just chat about Sigmund Freud for a little while? I mean, I, I think we were actually talking about it last night at dinner, so I can steal some of the things that other people said to me, um, which my editor actually was talking about, which is just that maybe it can. I think Ellie. One of the things that's great about Ellie is that sort of her her id and her superego are really clearly defined, right? Like like she has this big messy set of desires that she recognizes don't fit into civilization, and that it is her obligation to kind of rein them in. And in doing so, I think she's one of the characters who has the clearest understanding of herself. She sees herself as divided. She recognizes that something is being lost when she makes the choices that she needs to make to live in the world. And I think some of the other characters, precisely what's gotten lost is their understanding of the fact that they're kind of buffeted by different forces and that the things that they want with one part of their brain are not the things that they want with other parts of themselves. And rather than acknowledging that, they try and tell themselves a story where they don't actually want the things they want or they can get the things they want without causing harm. And so I think being able to recognize that kind of essential conflict is something that, that, that ties together a lot of the different characters in the stories and that in my understanding of, of, of Freud is, is part of that, that kind of deep insight of that necessary but really difficult tension. Is that, do you think that is, does that answer your question without <laughs> skipping away from it? <laughs> Partly at least. Yeah. But it, I think, thinking about that, I mean, yeah. Ben, mm, the good guy. Oh, Ted, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no. Sorry. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a case. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't quite know what he wants. What yeah, no, he, he confuses me though because in sometimes I mean some he does articulate quite yeah. a few of his desires. Yeah, and I think he he is someone I don't know, let's see. Yeah, like I guess it's a very is it even Freudian because it's so obvious I guess his fantasy at the beginning. I mean, he Ted is a person I think who has gotten really tangled up in that story of of goodness kind of who's gotten lost in the weeds as he sort of he wants to be good but he doesn't believe in his own capacity he doesn't believe that there's some like synthesis of getting what he wants and also being a good person. And so I think he oscillates really wildly from being like, well, like as he does sort of in the beginning, he's like, my desires harm people. People hate them by liking people. I hurt them. So I'm just going to like lock them all down and pretend they don't exist and just move in the world as though I'm someone else. And that then by doing that, he then sort of later finds that like, there's no value. In, I think he sort of loses the idea that there's something inherently good about being honest at all about who you are and what you want. You know, that, that it feels like to him lying both to himself and to other people about who he is, is the good thing to do. And that his relationships with women kind of get ugly in part because I think they both, he lies to them about who he is in this deeper sense. Do you know what I mean? But he tells them, I don't know, like he can't, I'm getting like, I'm going to go lie in bed now and stare. Like, well, go to bed and just lie and stare at the ceiling thinking about this. But I think he doesn't, he can't, he can't, he's lost the sense of who he actually is. So there's not really a distinction between truth and lies for him and his relationships with other people. Um, and so maybe, yeah, it's, it's fully 
he's just kind of fully lost the plot there in a way that Ellie Ellie doesn't. Does that seem true to you? I don't know. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. sounds yeah. That sounds about it. Yeah. Although there's other other stuff going on. You guys can read it and, and tell yeah. us because we don't know. <laughs> and I'm sorry for jumping in like that. Yeah. Was there somebody no, else who wanted great. to actually pose a question? Yeah. Or just other other answers I managed to, or questions I managed to evade. You want to call my attention <laughs> to, so that answer them more fully. No, we we'll let you uh, off the hook. Uh, there's, I think. There's oh, one sorry. Lo one last question. Yeah, yes. yeah. Oh, did you have a more specific question? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. boy. I was wondering, uh, did you sort of uh, study uh, the the psychological side and problems of Ellie? What, why does she bite, <laughs> etc.? Yeah, I mean, I, how much do you know about this kind of syndrome? I mean, I know I, I was a psychology major in college. I don't remember if we did a unit on biting and and, <laughs> um, and oral fixations. I guess I guess maybe we did. I mean, certainly, yeah. Um, the idea that she's arrested at a certain stage and then never moves forward is, I think, part of the what's kind of hilarious. I guess it is a kind of Freudian joke that rather than the kind of sexuality that we would expect her to have, she's stuck in this moment where biting is just the best thing she can possibly, you know, imagine. Um, and and I think that is part of it. But I, but for me, what's what's sort of richer or truer about Ellie is like she wants to bite in in preschool in a lar large part in this for the same reasons she wants to bite when she's an adult, which is that she sees it as a way of kind of like upending power. Like when she she's a, just a little girl in nursing school until she bites and then everyone's screaming and reacting to her and sort of she is the one kind of running the table by introducing all this chaos. And I think that impulse is the same that when um, what sort of pulls her into a new phase of biting as an adult is that sense that, that and we'll see the, you see this sort of as the, the story unfolds more, is that, that she's in she's engaging with someone who's attempting to assert that same kind of like brute power over her and she's sort of like well like i i heard we weren't allowed to be doing this to each other but if we are then i am very happy you know to kind of bite back and, and do what i've wanted to do this whole time and so yeah i guess that's my 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 interpretation of of, of at least some of ellie's behavior but thanks <laughs> Should we let you off the hook? I mean, it's fun to me, but yes, we probably should let these guys off. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much, and thank all of you.